Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. We consider land use a takings. If when you bought your land, you could have done X, Y, or Z with it, either you need to be allowed to do X, Y, and Z with it, or the state needs to compensate you for the loss in value of your land. I think ballot measures are absolutely critical to our political landscape, mostly because as we're hamstrung by five and 50, uh-huh. so much of what we do on the ballot is actually funding because housing and homelessness is not a jurisdictional issue, it's a state and a regional issue. We've stepped up as the funder. All right, folks, today we had a very fun podcast with Metro Councilor Christine Lewis. I will just at the outset say that Christine is very good at taking complex issues and explaining them in a way that everybody can understand. I think this will be a good framework episode for understanding Metro's role in a couple of high profile issues and understanding some of the foundational policy and structural dynamics of things like, you know, transportation in the metro area, housing and homelessness, and the two different bonds that Metro has passed to address these issues, and Clackamas County, which I thought was another interesting conversation at the end. But if you don't know Christine Lewis, she's had a wide-ranging career in Oregon politics and now is obviously an elected member of the Metro Council, representing a lot of Clackamas County and some Multnomah County and a little bit of Washington County. But before that, she did a bunch of stuff in the political space and as a staffer. So she went to Reed College, which we talk about at the beginning of the episode, and she talks about what she did her thesis project on. But she also works as a lobbyist for the city of Portland and for the Bureau of Labor and Industries. She's worked as a campaign manager on several different ballot measures. She worked as a campaign manager for Jules Bailey and in his office as Multnomah County Commissioner. She worked for Future Pack. She worked for SDLF. She worked for Speaker Tina Kotek for a bit. She was a campaign manager for Peter Courtney for State Senate. And she was an awesome guest. And I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation. What I love about this conversation is I think there's something for everybody. If you're a campaign person and you're more on the campaign hack side, we'll talk a little bit about that at the beginning and what makes for a great campaign experience and sort of some of the trade-offs of being involved at campaigns at different levels. And then in the second half of the interview, we talk a lot about policy and Metro where she sits, which I think will be useful for our listeners. Thank you for listening to this podcast and supporting the work that we do and enjoy this episode with Metro Councilor Christine Lewis. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. All right, Metro Councilor Christine Lewis, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to get the invitation. Yeah, we are excited to have you. Okay, so first, I want to ask you about several things in your background, because you, especially for this podcast, where most of the people who listen are political nerds, you have had very interesting jobs in Oregon politics. But before we get to that, you went to Reed College, Reed College, where my legislative chief of staff attended college. Why did you decide to go to Reed College? I was super excited to get as far away from Dallas, Texas as possible. So I was looking at small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast and the Northwest, and Reed really stood out to me. It was a place that had an amazing creative energy, and the other factor I was looking for was a liberal arts college that invested in the sciences. And Reed not only does, you know, the creative and the traditional humanities really well, they do natural sciences really well. 
Dallas, Texas and Reed College are barely the same country, just very barely the same country. <laughs> you know, they might be two sides of what makes America great. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. So don't Reed students have to do like a big capstone or thesis project or something. What was your yeah. what did you write about? Yeah, every senior writes a thesis and I wrote mine. I was an anthropology major. Started out as a physics major, see that, you know, investment in the sciences. But yeah, as an anthropology major, I focused in on unionization efforts, Coca-Cola plants, particularly in Colombia, mm-hmm. and some of the student organizing and transnational resistance movements after some alleged murders of unionists and organizers hmm. and otherwise kind of unfair labor practice and maltreatment of workers. I was going to ask you if you like always knew you wanted to work in politics, but it certainly sounds like you did based on the thesis. Well, it's interesting because I came to it from the community organizing perspective. I did Mm -hmm. not actually ever take a poli-sci class. I did not come to that thesis topic really interested in the the union side and more in the transnational social justice movement and how the organizations Mm -hmm. were working together, particularly on college campuses. So you graduate from Reed. What was your first job in Oregon politics? Yeah, I graduated in 2007, so coming in right at the front end of the pandemic, but also right at the beginning of our hope and change era in politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really, at that point in time, interested in doing work in the environment. I was an active volunteer with Sierra Club, and all of the folks who are a little bit politically inclined, who were Sierra Club folks, got pulled into the Measure 49 campaign, that big land use measure, to correct the measure that had been passed two years previous. So I showed up for a couple of volunteer shifts. And as soon as that measure was hiring campaign staff, got offered a campaign job. Can you explain? I was an organizer. <laughs> an or- that's where most of us, I think, got the start. Can you explain the Measure 49 land use issue context? What was going on? What was that about? Absolutely. So I think most people, when they think land use, think Senate Bill 100 and going mm-hmm. back, you know, 40 years. So that is absolutely critical to understanding the context. You know, Tom McCall, who said, look, we got to keep Oregon, Oregon, and we got to make sure that we're stopping sprawl from eating up our amazing farmland. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the early 2000s, an organization called Oregonians in Action and folks who were more interested in the developer side started to kind of make plays to a road that set of the 100. So hmm. measure 37 had passed in 2006. Okay. And that basically said that we consider land use a takings. If when you bought your land, you could have done X, Y, or Z with it, either you need to be allowed to do X, Y, and Z with it, or the state needs to compensate you for the loss in value of your land. The legislature started to realize how much compensation money was about to go out the door and it would bankrupt the state while also completely unraveling the land use system. So they referred the measure that was measure 49. It was a compromise measure. It was on in 07, you know, after their work in session to refer this measure. And it it basically undid the takings and the payout because the state couldn't afford it. It allowed for modest development if when you had If you or your family had purchased the property, you could still develop a few houses, particularly thinking through, you know, if you're a family and you have three kids, let each one of them build a house on that property. And so that's what that measure was. It was refining balance and getting our way forward in the land use system. So really technical, really wonky. Frankly, Clackamas County had the most measure of 37 claims in in the whole state. So when I was hired on Measure 49, I was specifically tasked with just organizing in Clackamas County because that was a lot of work. What were the, so land use is so wonky and complicated. And so I'm trying to imagine what the conversations with voters looked like. Like, what was your message? Like, what, how did you try to explain this to people who probably had not spent much time thinking about land use planning? Yeah, it was a really interesting campaign because the conversation looked really different in Malala and Malino than it did mm-hmm. in Lake Oswego and West Lynn. Mm-hmm. And we actually, you know, we're spending time with sophisticated county level map style materials. So it was a neighborhood based conversation because people, everybody knew where the kind of pressure valve was for sprawl. 
And they didn't want to talk about it as a statewide level. They want to talk about the neighborhood scale. So mm -hmm. that's what we did. You know, it was an organizing campaign for an off-cycle election. The only other thing on the ballot was the children's health care measure. So the game for us was about voter education and then turnout. Mm -hmm. Because we knew that in an 07 election, we had to do the turnout ourselves. So you get through the ballot measure 49 campaign. You get a win on election night. Are you like, I'm hooked. This is what I want to do. I loved it. Yeah, I I loved the adrenaline. I loved the short-term sprint. Mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed organizing in communities that were excited to have somebody there to, to help them address issues that were important to them. And I loved that campaign team. It was an off-cycle election. So we had some of the best you know organizers on our campaign and became really close even while doing state-level work. So Really enjoyed it, surprised myself and said, I want to do this again. And had a few folks who even before the election had talked to me, one, a young guy who said, maybe I want to run for the legislature. I care a lot about climate. I'm an economist by training. I'm a nerd. <laughs> Put me in coach. Um, and that was Jules Bailey. And I talked to him at length. I don't, you know, as I said, an environmentalist and climate person mm -hmm. and the idea of getting a young person in the legislature with a focus on climate and that new perspective was really attractive to me. I didn't know how crazy I was going into a four-way Democratic primary in Southeast Portland <laughs> and how lonely it is working in politics in a primary, but it, it didn't matter. I, I've, I found I was able to, to do good work and work on a team that I could learn a lot from. What do you mean by lonely? Well, I mean... You've been in campaigns when it's state legislative level, and there's very few of you actually doing the day in, day out work. Yeah. And then you get partner groups who help you. But in a Democratic primary, like your partner groups are pretty few and far between in terms mm -hmm. of wanting to, to make a bet on a safe district. So mm -hmm. it was a lot of work working with, you know, his network. He was a great mentor and had also worked in politics, so had friends from other campaigns and other political positions, but getting to to work side by side with him and kind of, you know, the the hard work, the trenches of just knocking on a bunch of doors, because that's how you want a, a four-way primary, knock on that a on the doors. <laughs> yep, it is exhausting and there's no shortcut. You have to do the work. Yep. Okay, so you work for the great Jules Bailey. Your resume gets you've worked for Jules Bailey, you've worked for Peter Courtney, you've worked for Tina Kotek, you worked as a lobbyist for Portland, for Bowley, you've done ballot measures, caucus campaign arms. The impossible question, you can't use Metro Councilor to answer this question. What is the best job in politics that you had or or that you look back the most fondly on? Oh wow. Really unfair that I can't say <laughs> what I have now because I, I am enjoying the what I have now. <laughs> Yeah. There's so much nostalgia I have for that Measure 49 campaign. I was really? young. I had I had nothing else going on, so I was fully in it. You know, it was my first campaign, so I didn't see the bumps in the road before they came. And, you know, as I went over them, I, like, grabbed a hold. And I was like, I'm flying. And, again, this campaign team, it was just incredible to be that tight-knit and working that hard with cool people. That said, a ballot measure campaign of that ilk comes around so rarely and it's mm -hmm. kind of unfair to say it's the best job in Oregon politics every job's had its ups and its downs one job I really really liked that actually comes next sequentially was my work on the zoo bond that oh, was yeah. 2008 and it felt very strange at the time because that was 2008 general and everybody else was out there like doing the Obama thing and I was you know in this like doing the zoo I'm thing not, yeah I'm not going to be at the convention center at eight o'clock I'm going to be hanging out with people who care about elephants okay that's that's fine I'm, I'm missing out on that but that was another opportunity that I had to work with an, an incredible campaign team and on something that just made people smile there's very little that we get to the ballot with even when it's great people like you and like me that people smile when they see their ballot, but you know, this do it sticks out because even people who didn't want to pay a tax wanted to talk about the elephants. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's awesome. My, for, for you, when you were describing your experience on ballot measure 49, I was thinking of my experience on the Kitzhaber campaign in 2010. Cause it's like, it's your first campaign. Everything you're learning is new. It feels so exciting. All the people feel like giants that you're meeting. You're like, Oh my God, I'm in the room with these people. This is unbelievable. And it's hard to, I don't think I'll ever live up to that first experience. Cause it's just such a novel, exciting thing. 
Yeah, my best advice for folks who want to do campaigns and get good at them is to find campaign mentors. Mm-hmm. And you don't generally find those on those really big statewide measures. But what you do find is community and you do find really good learning opportunities on those statewide efforts. Yeah, that's I've thought about that when like talking to college students who are like, I want to work in politics. It seems to I think statewide is a better first a statewide campaign or a congressional campaign or something big, like well-funded, lots of the operation. Like to your point about that, I was thinking about this loneliness aspect of state legislative races. Like there's not a big team. The work is pretty repetitive. There's not like other, I mean, you can, you're going to do some like, you know, donor research probably, and you're going to do some phone calling and some door knocking, but that's basically it. And you're not really exposed to other things because those aren't in the spaces you'll be in. So it's a good experience to be like a campaign manager, I think, for a legislative race. But if you're just like an intern or volunteering, not that you shouldn't intern on legislative races, we want you to do that. But statewide is like the place where you'll see and meet a lot of people, or at least that's the way it was back in 2010, where you had this one big headquarters and people were coming in and out all the time. And the sense of excitement every day, like, it's a different thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. A big headquarters. Like, I mean, it's weird. I feel very nostalgic towards the Lloyd Center, um, <laughs> even though I kind of hate the quote unquote mall culture. But like, I remember going to the food court because that's where campaign headquarters was and like taking the mall employee discount on my lunch because I was there four days in a row. <laughs> yeah, it was Kids Over 2010 was, I think the address was 3013 Southeast Division Street in Southeast Portland. It, it is used since... to be the, the, the Nature's before it became a New Seasons or something. Now, well, now I think it's, what's the name of that delicious Indian food? Bollywood. Yeah, I think it's Bollywood now, or at least part of it's Bollywood. That's right. And I remember right outside the headquarters, at one point during the campaign, Chris Dudley bought a billboard that took the campaign, the Kitzhaber, like bumper sticker with blue background, white font that said Kitzhaber. And he wrote ungovernable, which was like, I can't remember if he actually said it or he allegedly said it, but it was like a little poke in the eye. And I just was like, I'm so in this, like I'm on my team. Very good experience. Okay, so I want to shift a little bit to contemporary policy issues. But before we do that, like we should address this, like it's a pretty big shift when you go from staff side to elected side, like the lifestyle is very different. The level of commitment is very different. The level of like being public and being vetted is very different. Did you always know you wanted to make that transition or was the specific opportunity at Metro compelling to you or how did you think about that opportunity? Yeah, so I never wanted to do it. It's horrible. Um, you've done it. I've done it. I don't wish it upon the people I hate on this planet the most. Being a candidate is, uh, it's like totally full exposure. It is uh-huh. hard and lonely work. Uh, none of it is glamorous, except maybe getting your hair done for your your, your portrait that they put in. The I don't even get that experience. That's so sad for me. Yeah, bummer. You missed out on the one good part. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I loved campaigning, and then I'm a nerd, so I really wanted to dig in and do policy work, right? So that's where I really found ballot measures fulfilling, because as a ballot measure, like, you are a policy expert. Somebody's going to ask you a question about the words on paper, and you get to answer them. The other good thing about working on ballot measures is that there's no candidate to call you at four in the morning because the website doesn't render the way that they want it to. <laughs> so ballot measures are great. Ballot measures like open the door to my ideas around how to get good at policy. And, you know, then I did these policy jobs, at, mostly at the state level. I was really interested in the issues that Metro works on, the traditional issues, uh, environment, climate change, transportation, again, the zoo, land use. Those were all things that I was excited to to get to work on. And then the opportunity for Metro to do more in housing, I found that to be really compelling. I did not actually want to run. I was at first intrigued by the idea because my Metro counselor was retiring early. And so it was an appointment process. Mm-hmm. And the appointment is like such a low stakes That's scenario right. comparatively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, I can go up for an appointment. There's nothing to lose in that. The unfortunate thing was the appointment was timed so close to the general election timeline anyway, that by the time you were getting endorsements and, and getting everything ready for the appointment, you were basically doing it for the election. Mm. So I ended up 
in the election and the appointment at the same time. I was not appointed. There were four of us on the ballot. Three of us had gone up for the appointment uh, very competitively. So I kind of saw how things could shake out and decided to keep going on the ballot anyway. And that was a pretty hard decision. But I, at that point in time, had talked to a number of people who had told me, we really need your voice at Metro. And whether that was constituents who were traditional Metro friends or folks who had really struggled with Metro either to get their side of the story seen or to get their kind of topic or issue even recognized as one of concern at Metro. So I, I felt like I had a role to play and was willing to, to keep going into that May election. Okay, so refresh my memory. Who was it that resigned early? It was Carlotta Colette. She took her retirement and went to Corvallis, which is obviously outside of the district. So that is what spurred the appointment process. So she resigns. And then who did they appoint? Betty Dominguez. Oh, who was she she running for the full thing? She was on the ballot. Yes. Oh, wow. Because and then wasn't the runoff between you and Joe Buck? That's right. Yes. So, so fascinating there, on so many levels There were here. four of us, <laughs> and the appointee didn't even make it into the general. So yes, now Mayor Joe Buck and I were right. head-to-head in, in November. So much for the uh, incumbency advantage argument. That's interesting that that played out that way. And you and Joe like have a good relationship now, right? We work together really well now. It's a really good example of you don't make enemies in politics because they're, yep. they're going to stick around. They'll come back. They'll be your friend one day. Such an important lesson. Okay, so transitioning a little bit, but I'm actually picking up on something you you mentioned earlier in that answer, which is about ballot measures. You said you love ballot measures. You love working on ballot measures. Ballot measures are an interesting thing, and they elicit very strong opinions from people. You'll hear one, on one side, you'll hear framing that are basically like ballot measures are a horrible way to craft policy. They happen in a vacuum. They happen outside of a legislative session. They happen without regard for financial consequences. And then on the other side, you'll hear like, well, ballot measures are the way to do things that like the legislature doesn't have the courage to do or doesn't have the will to do, or maybe doesn't want to do. So there's this outlet for citizens, like part of this progressive reform movement to really give the power of government back to the people. I'm curious how you think on the philosophical level about ballot measures in a, in a place like Oregon, where it's such a huge part of our political landscape. Yeah, I think ballot measures are absolutely critical to our political landscape, mostly because as we're hamstrung by five and 50, uh-huh. so much of what we do on the ballot is actually funding. And okay. whether it's a very intentional well-researched tool like a bond or a levy or something a little bit more policy oriented in reshaping how funding happens. I think it's really critical that we have that tool. I'm a big believer in direct democracy. I think in particular with how educated Oregon voters are, how we sit down at the kitchen table, discuss with our families and friends before doing mail-in ballot, it's part of who we are. So I do understand the frustrations because I've experienced them at Metro. I see them at the yeah. state right now. Good luck with 110 reform. <laughs> there is a lot to be said for a ballot measure process that has a higher higher barrier to you know policy expertise and being drafted correctly. I love a legislative referral, but I do think ballot measures are, are important for our democracy. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of these have uh, been on different kinds of ballot measures have been involved. Let's talk about housing and homelessness. So when you ask voters, what are the most important issues or the biggest challenges Oregon's facing uniformly in the last like two years of surveys that I've seen, housing and homelessness, some combination of those two are at the top of the list. We also, I talk a lot on this podcast about what I think, I don't know if it's a limitation, but it is just a, a truth of the dynamic in this state, which is you've got federal dollars in policy, state dollars in policy. And then you've got city of Portland, you've got Multnomah County, you've got Metro, you've got other local government on an issue that is not really geographically specific is actually a big regional problem. Can you explain, I'll quote Michael Scott, explain to me like I'm in third grade, the Metro role And let's start with housing. If it's the same for housing and homelessness that we can incorporate, but let's start just with the housing question. Like what is Metro's job or role when it comes to housing policy? When it comes to housing policy, Metro has stepped up in the past five years because housing and homelessness is not a jurisdictional issue. It's a state and a regional issue. 
we've stepped up as the funder. We collect at the regional level the tax, and then we empower the local jurisdictions that do the work to take their share of the money and do the work as they need to in their corner of the region. Hmm. That's okay. the simple third grade answer. I can get more technical in that when we collect the bond for building out the housing that is affordable to people who make the least money, we collect that at Metro and immediately turn around and put it to the seven jurisdictions that are called housing authorities. Mm-hmm. So in Clackamas County, none of my cities that I represent are big enough to have their own housing authority. So Clackamas mm-hmm. County is the housing authority for everything in Clackamas County. Whereas in Washington County, Hillsborough and Beaverton are their own housing authorities. And then Washington County is the housing authority for areas not covered by those two cities. So that's why in housing on the bricks and sticks side, we have seven housing authorities. And then on the services side, we have the three counties that are doing the work of implementing the supportive housing services measure. Okay, couple follow-up questions here. One, is Metro literally just like passing through these dollars? Are you setting requirements on how they must be used? Are you measuring outcomes? Like, what is your role there? Thank you for asking that. We are not just taking the money and cutting a check. (laughs) We are making sure that the funds are spent as laid out in the ballot measures that enable those funds. For both, we have a oversight committee as made up of mostly regular people who do monthly meetings in order to ensure compliance and oversight. We also, in the homeless services measure, have a specific set of funds that are put into our work on data because we need more eyes on how the data is actually getting collected and accumulated And we need to make sure that when we are looking at data, it is not just the point in time count in all three counties added together, because that's not actually how we're going to get ourselves out of this. We have to actually have metrics and have data about how things are going closer to real time. How would you encourage folks to think about the housing ballot measure? Did it work? Is it producing what we hoped it would produce? Is it solving the problem? Is it too small to solve the problem? Like, how do you think about it? So there's two ballot measures. 2018, we passed the bond and that's building on housing. Mm-hmm. We promised over 12,000 people would be housed through the units built and we're on track to overperform to the tune of over 14,000 people. So that one is working. That's one where I think in the past month, we've had like three openings and we are putting affordable housing in places like Happy Valley, where there's never been affordable housing before. So that's an absolute success. And we need to find a way to continue that pipeline, because despite the historic investments that you as a legislator have helped unlock, most of the affordable housing happens with a pretty complex finance stack. That's and right. there are still gaps even after your state investment. So the local dollars that we unlock make the region competitive to get its share, frankly, of the state housing dollars. Before we talk about the second ballot measure, I think that is a really important point that is kind of complicated. Can you explain the stack and what that might look like in a typical project? Like who is involved? How does this money get sort of collected? There is no typical project, so I'm not going (laughs) to pretend to be able to portray a typical project. But every project that I've ever seen has at least five funding sources. I was at the DPO summit where you were where somebody was talking about a project in Bend that had over 40 funding sources. That's too many. And frankly, if we're going to lower the cost of affordable housing, we're all talking about different ways that we can reduce the costs like here and there. I think one of the biggest ways is to incentivize the finance stack coming together faster and smoother Mm -hmm. because it costs money to sit around putting together that stack. So bigger chunks of money coming out more regularly Um, I think are important for that. So one of the lessons I've learned is if we're going to continue to invest as a region, don't have just one or two notices of funding availability, do it like every quarter, do it two or three times a year so that you're not having projects sit and wait for that notice to come out. So is the reason why you have these stacks with so many different funders, is it because they're all trying to mitigate their own risk or minimize their risk? Or is it because the number is so high that none of them can meet it on their own? Like, why is it the way that it is? 
No funding source is actually designed to build basically a turnkey project. Mm -hmm. Every funding source is basically built to leverage or incentivize other investments because we are always looking to get more bang for our buck. So for instance, tax credits, either 4% or 9% are most of the time part of the base of a finance plan. And the 9% are really, really rare and really, really competitive. Almost any good project can get a 4%. But that difference there, like you're basically saying only a very few projects get the 9% that goes way further. So almost every single project is starting off at a disadvantage because they didn't get that 9%. Hmm. So it's it gets incredibly wonky. And I should probably like recognize I'm at the edge of being over my skis. But it gets really wonky really quickly because every single tool we have is designed to be partnered or paired with at least one or two all. That is really useful and helpful. Okay. So ballot measure one, super successful, meeting its targets, exceeding its targets. We're building more units. Awesome. People are moving in. People who are in housing only because we have built that unit are having so much success. People are able to live where they want to. They're living in high opportunity areas. Yes. Ballot measure one, success. Declaring victory. We need to keep doing <laughs> Number two, homelessness services. Give us the verdict. How do you think about whether that worked or is solving the problem? I'm going to say we're in progress on that. And okay. I can't give you one grade because I want to give us three different grades, one for each county. Okay. And unfortunately, the county that's just trouncing it and like doing really well is Washington County, where I have the fewest constituents, but good for you. <laughs> I have all my constituents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all three counties have had challenges with implementation and there are similar challenges in that the ramp up period to go from like very little to a lot is pretty significant and in particular you have washington and clackamas county who had very little long-term investment in the pipeline of the services so for instance clackamas county would spend about eight million dollars a year on houselessness before this measure passed, which meant they had one or two really good managers, but they didn't have that career ladder within the county so that they could mm. basically turn on the spigot of more dollars. They actually had to build out, how do you build an office that can manage this much money? How do you build an office that can find this many contractors? And then our providers are in the same boat of how do they you know, ramp up so quickly? So you had, Washington and Clackamas counties walk into this saying, give us a little bit of ramp up time. But then you had Multnomah County who said, we're really good at this. This measure was built around our needs. We're ready to do this. We're going to go zero to a hundred in year one. And that's where they've fallen into a challenge because each of the three counties has their own local implementation plan. Whatever that LIP is, local implementation plan, that's what we hold them to. Hmm. So the fact that Multnomah County said they were going to be a hundred percent by year two, that's where we said, oh, you are not spending all your money. Whereas Washington and Clackamas said, oh, it's going to take us a couple of years before we're going to be at 100%, but here's the metrics we are going to meet. They're meeting those metrics. And then you also see the success. You know, Washington County has a lot of success. They've opened their first year-round shelter in Beaverton. You see Clackamas County with 100 shelter beds either added or uh, kept open that would have closed when the ARPA dollars ran out. And then you see Clackamas County, even with their point in time, their annual homelessness numbers, they've cut homelessness, not quite, but nearly half. So they're doing really good work helping move people off the streets. So each of our three counties is doing good work. I think that we have more to do to make a system that works across the jurisdictional boundaries. Homelessness doesn't know jurisdictions. Right. So there's this kind of question right now that I'll frame up as coordination versus consolidation. What hmm. services just need better coordination? What services actually need to be consolidated and have a single program that the counties aren't competing with each other? Mm, that's so interesting. Okay, so can you explain briefly the how, is it the same sort of structure, like Metro collects the tax? You mentioned the local implementation plans, they provide those to you, and then you basically fund based on those plans? Yeah, so we collect the tax and then the funds go out to the three counties based on our approximation of who paid the tax. 
So mm-hmm. it's not based on need. It's actually based off of how many high income earners and how many businesses in each of the three counties there are. And we're going to make sure that we are doing a balance check, but we basically think that the money in is, is the money out straight back to those counties. And the counties spend, according to the local implementation plan, they go through a set of reports that we require. We've designed the reports at Metro, and that's the basis for this data work that I've talked about. That, that's our layer. Our investment is in running regional data. And it's been a long haul getting to where we're at. Our staff are still working out some of the new technicalities, but to have everybody in the region have access to the same HMIS system, to have Metro have access to it at the level they need to make the reports. It's all coming together, but it's 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 a slow go. The final thing that I will note is that we have what's called the Tri-County Planning Body, mm-hmm. and that is work that is being done not only to make sure that these dollars are spent in real time in the most efficient and most effective way possible, But planning out the systems change, the long-term, you know, this is a funding measure that we've given ourselves 10 years to work with the folks who are chronically homeless, the folks who are hardest to help off the streets. What are the systems changes that we need to make so that when we come off of this measure or when we no longer have as much money dedicated to those long-term chronically homeless people, that we keep a low chronically homeless population, that we don't have folks who hit the streets and stay there for a long time. So that's when we're doing work, talking at the policy level around better and implementing housing with Medicaid waiver. It's where we're doing work actually talking about the workforce. Hmm. If you are looking at the workforce for uh, homeless services right now, it's extremely strained. Most of the folks have to get an MSW. They have to get a very expensive degree to then go and basically make minimum wage with no opportunities for career advancement. Um, We're also looking at ways that we work with landlords because we need to get people in the units and some of those units we're building, you know, the conversation we just had about the bond, the easiest and quickest way to get some in housing is to find a landlord who's willing to work with a service provider. And right now we have a very splintered approach to that, depending on what population you're serving and in what part of the region. Wouldn't it be great to have a single program, at least a single Mm -hmm. standard, so that we are giving landlords what they need in terms of a guarantee, in terms of a phone number they can call if somebody's having a challenge. That That's kind of the bare minimum that's going to go up from there. So those are the policy-level discussions that we're having at the, what we call Tri-County Planning Body. One last question on this. Do you hear from constituents about these ballot measures and their implementation? And if so, what's the gist of it? Do people feel good about them? Or they're concerned that it's not solving the problem. I do hear from constituents on these measures. They definitely don't refer to them as measures, and they definitely don't separate out the bond from supportive housing services. The constituents are absolutely eyes wide open to what's happening, less at the county level, but more at their city level. And I do think that there's work to be done to make sure the supportive housing services measure. Those dollars get better coordinated with the work that cities are providing. It is the county's job to run social services, but all three counties have cities within their jurisdiction who have folks on staff who are basically running parallel and they need better coordination. They maybe need those resources because if you're somebody in crisis, you're not just going to go to a social worker. You might show up at a library. You might Mm -hmm. have somebody who you trust who works for the police or who works for the fire. So we need to make sure that we're in better coordination there. That's really helpful. Thank you for that overview. I think that's really useful. I want to shift to climate and I want to start, actually, I will start broadly. When you think of climate and climate policy and Metro, what does Metro do that is related to climate policy? Everything. Everything that we do. When you look at very specific ways that we're going to bend the curve, Mm -hmm. everything goes through good planning. We have 40% of our emissions coming from transportation and nearly 40 coming from our built environment. So while I'm not doing building codes at Metro, everything around land use planning, everything about making livable communities, that's the built environment that is going to help us drop down that 40%. And then making sure that people have choices on how to get around that are not relying on single occupancy vehicle, while at the same time planning for a future in which we do have plug-in and electric vehicles. As that, I mean, that's absolutely where the game's at and Metro's involved on both sides. And garbage and recycling. 
and garbage and recycling <laughs> and making smart investments in natural areas so that we have tree canopy, so that we have clean water and so that we have shade. Shade equity is a mm -hmm. huge, I mean, it's an emergent policy area, but it's a huge deal when we're looking at how we're going to make investments in our natural area program. So transportation, Metro, I'm trying to remember, was it 2020? that Metro put out a pretty ambitious bond on transportation issues to build a bunch of new infrastructure projects. And I think it lost pretty handily. What is your read? Uh, first, explain why why refer that ballot measure and then what's your read on why voters rejected it? Sure, absolutely. I was supportive of putting together the package because we are hamstrung as a region because we don't have local dollars in order to draw down the big dollars from the federal government. So we need dollars that we can use not only for our top priorities, but also to help make sure that we're getting um, our match out there and building what we want to build in terms of more light rail more urban arterials that are built not only for how quickly you can get a car from A to Z, but how safely you can cross the street and not get hit by that car who wants to get from A to Z. So the work that we did was incredibly community focused. And we built out a measure that was reflective of not only what the transportation agencies had on their list, but of the tone and texture from what people wanted to see in terms of roadway improvements and in terms of transit. And the opportunity to focus in on these corridors that we know are important either because they're in equity areas or because they're high crash corridors or often both. We actually put on the map very intentionally corridors that we're gonna get deep investment. So it's not just about raising money and saying, here's the kind of programs it's going to fund. We actually said where those investments were going to be made. So I'm really proud of the work that we put into our spending plan. The place where we fell short was in coming up with a revenue source that was palatable to those who were going to be paying it. Mm -hmm. And we put off the discussion thinking that once people saw how great the thing was we wanted to buy, hesitations would soften. But the business community that was never really bought in on Tiger Light Rail hardened because they didn't want to pay this to do just one light rail project as they saw it. They didn't see the benefit in all the community level and the arterial investments. So we fell short because we had folks who were going to be paying who didn't see value in the projects that they were going to be paying for. They didn't like the tax mechanism of corporate tax. And at the end of the day, it was early mid pandemic and the financial future was as uncertain as it's ever been. And That's they right. had a really persuasive argument of why are you asking us to pay this tax? And we don't know if we're going to be alive in, you know, six months. <laughs> I do think that context is incredibly important. I think the farther we get from 2020 and the more we look back at the results and I have my own selfish reasons for thinking this, but people forget that the context of voters having their ballot in front of them in those moments was a very different context than they felt in 2022 and hopefully yeah. we'll ever feel again, although I'm not super confident that we'll never have another pandemic. Okay. But where does that leave us then? So this money would have unlocked a boatload of federal dollars that would have basically ignited a bunch of really critical transportation projects. Some of those are, I think just like stalled maybe is the right word. Like, I don't know, like what do we do now? Is there another ballot measure that maybe needs to happen? How are you thinking about it? Yeah, so I look at it as our plan is still really good and mostly intact. I can take Southwest Corridor Light Rail and like push it aside because there is nothing else to be done until we find a way that we can find tens and hundreds of millions of local dollars. So mm -hmm. that's one where I, I say I'm going to keep paying attention to it, but I don't have action on it right now. But what I do have is the ability to use the rest of the plan as a guideline for how we come to the legislature and ask for more work to be done so that we have money that's not just going in the highway projects, it's actually going into our local priorities. And you've been a huge advocate for that. We are doing work right now to make sure that the Oregon Transportation Commission knows that every next dollar that comes free in the step needs to go into urban arterials because that's our top priority. And then likewise, we've got work being done on TV Highway and 82nd Avenue that's going to be unlocked by not only jurisdictional transfer, but also by future 
improvements in our transit system so that those are places where people can build out their community while knowing that it's a safe place to get around by transit. A couple of definitional questions for my audience who might not be super familiar with some of these. Can you explain what is the role of the OTC? What is their job and why are they critical here? I'm not going to get it 100% right, but from my vantage point, the role of the Oregon Transportation Commission is to be the level of governance Mm -hmm. above the agency director and below the governor. That way that the governor is not the one choosing specific investment level decisions, but instead it's this group of five, five, seven, five, five or seven, I don't know people who live across the state and have various assorted backgrounds related to transportation and community development. And the STIP, what is the STIP? That's basically the funding plan for how state transportation dollars are going to be invested. Does Metro, Metro has its own list of prioritized projects? Am I getting this wrong? You're absolutely right. It is and I am going to start throwing out more acronyms if I don't watch myself. <laughs> so we are midway through the voting process for the regional transportation plan. The 2023 RTP, as you've noted, has a constrained list of improvements and projects. And that list is really important because in order to receive federal funds or frankly, even state funds because of how ODOT uses this list, hmm. a project needs to be on that RTP. And metro councilors are the ones deciding like what's on, what's off? It's a vote that takes two steps. The first is JPAC and the second is Metro Council. So JPAC is the Joint Policy Tra- uh, JP, Joint Policy Transportation Committee. And that is the regional table with some agency folks there, one county commissioner from each county a few city folks, so mayors representing cities of their parts of the region, all coming together to make the regional transportation plan, which is both that list of projects that are going to be funded in the next 20 years, as we've just described, Mm -hmm. and also a set of policies. So the policy chapter explains how projects need to work in order to meet the region's expectations. So we have climate policy, we have equity policy, we now have a tolling policy. So that chapter three matches pretty nicely with the project list, but it's both a policy and a funding document. Are you hearing anything or any interest in uh, another metro ballot measure on transportation in the near future? Or does it seem like wait till legislature examines a transportation package and then sort of fill in gaps or what is the thinking? Yeah, our current thinking is we'd like the region and Metro to be more involved in preparation for the 25 session because we know the 25 session is where the conversation will have to happen saying we are falling off the gas tax cliff. We can no longer just raise gas tax and continue to fund not only operations and maintenance on our roads, but the future system we all hope and dream of. So we are interested in having a role there and are hoping that the legislature asks for the region's involvement and priorities. We are not interested in being duplicative in that work. And I also don't think there's any appetite to ask voters for more money until we see what that future is that we're going to have to build around. That makes sense. Okay, we are almost at time, but I want to ask you about another sort of related but totally unrelated topic. I had a great conversation with Adam Marl, um, uh, Oregon City Commissioner, about Clackamas County, arguably the most fascinating county in Oregon politically. And you're on the other side of the aisle from Adam as a Democrat, but you've ran and won in, is it all? No, you've got some Multnomah County, right? Yeah, I've got I've got a decent chunk of Multnomah County. I've got a lot of Clackamas County, and I have like 100 people who live in Washington County. But yeah, <laughs> okay. I'm mostly Clackamas County. So- can you at a, at a high level give your, like, how do you think about, like, if you were trying to explain the politics of Clackamas County to someone not from Oregon, how would you explain it? <laughs> wow. The politics of Clackamas County are basically like the politics of our country. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. you don't have the distance that you have between Alabama 
and Massachusetts to buffer that, you have the distance of maybe one river and maybe one city. So the opportunity for us to better understand Clackamas County is really critical before we can get into that partisan kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. So while Adam and I have professional experiences working in partisan positions, in our local governments, we're all nonpartisan. And so being elected as nonpartisan, having to function nonpartisan gives us that opportunity to really understand our communities. And it's a it's like a really purple place, not because people's values are purple, but because people want people to be reasonable. And people also are very invested in their communities. So I look at my part of Clackamas County, which, you know, my district is only the urban areas. So I represent Westland and Lake Oswego on the west side, but then I go all the way, you know, unincorporated and Happy Valley on the east side. And they may look sort of similar in some demographics in terms of income and racial diversity, but they couldn't be further apart in how people have chosen to live their lives there. So we, we need to not just look at where people are at partisan-wise or paper demographics-wise and really look at what people are looking for in their community. And we have some communities that are really invested in being community hubs and being a great place to raise a family, great place to retire to. We have some communities that it's just fine. You can't walk to a neighborhood coffee shop and Panera and Starbucks are your best choices. So I, I think it's about getting a little bit beyond partisanship we have had a wild pendulum shift mm -hmm. at the county commission level. You know, we at one point in time had nearly all Democrats and at this point in time have nearly all Republicans. Right. And that whiplash has been going on for at least two decades, maybe three at the county level. And we went from three county commissioners to five, but we didn't district. Mm. So you still have the same perverse pull to go up to Sandy or, you know, even Welch's and spend a lot of time up on the mountain. And then as a county commissioner, get your vehicle, turn around and drive to Canby and then go up to Lake Oswego. So like, if that's your day, you're spending a lot of time covering a lot of beautiful territory. You're not actually like learning deep in what those communities need. So I'd be a big advocate for districting so that you actually mm -hmm. are learning what those communities need. And you don't have this perverse incentive to be everywhere all the time. And you actually are just spending time living your truth. Okay. That's extremely hard about Clackamas County is not only do we have about half the population who live in rural and half in the urban, but the entire Clackamas County population is just under the threshold for the number that's considered a large county in the United States. Huh. So they look and feel like a medium-sized county because that's what they are. But then in the urban areas, we feel like we need the same levels of services and urban services in particular is Washington, Multnomah County are going to get, mm -hmm. but they're just not ever going to be supported that way through federal formula funds. That's super interesting. The districting thing is very interesting. So Washington County already districted, Multnomah County already districted, city of Portland has just moved to a districted option instead of at large. So I assume in order for that to happen in Clackamas County, voters would have to approve some kind of like- It'd be a charter amendment. Charter, charter amendment. amendment. Yep. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And the other thing that's really hard about Clackamas is how communities group. You know, like I live in Westland and there's a lot of Westland that like people don't even know they live in Westland. They kind of feel like they are neighbors with Lake Oswego. And then there's another part of Westland where people are feel very tied to the more rural area that's unincorporated or Oregon City. Hmm. But there's not a whole lot of people who feel like they have any connection to the unincorporated Jennings Lodge area, which is literally just across the river from Westland. So it's just this, like with that river, the east and west side, particularly because we don't have bridges hmm. like in Portland. It's just a, it's a big barrier and it's a big barrier for transportation planning, for community development and just our identities. Christine, you are an incredibly effective explainer of complex issues. So thank you for walking through some of the hard work that's going on in the region. Last question in our final minute here. If folks want to learn more about you, they want to get in touch with you, where would you direct them? What's the best way for them to get in touch? Oh, gosh. I think people should probably just send me an email or a text. <laughs> I left uh, Twitter slash X. I, I didn't actually sign oh. out of the account. I just, like, deleted it from my phone unceremoniously <laughs> one day. So don't 
tweet me because <laughs> I'll never see it. And I'm proud of that. Um, well done. Yeah, so I, I do have my Christine Lewis Facebook page. Uh, that is my politician campaign page. But also just send me an email. You can easily find my Metro email, christine.lewis.orgonmetro.gov. Um, also, christine, E-L, at gmail. Awesome. Christine Lewis, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. Really nice seeing you. <laughs>